Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guests today are David Osman and Phil Proctor. Both are actors, writers, and humorists. Osman and Proctor are half of the four-man team that made up the original Firesign Theater, an iconic comedy group that got its start on listener-supported radio in Los Angeles in 1966. The group was nominated for three Grammy Awards and was named by Entertainment Magazine as one of the 30 greatest acts of all time for its avant-garde, subversive, and surreal takes on popular culture, politics, and technology. The Firesign Theater produced 14 record albums, had three nationally syndicated radio programs, and frequently performed for live audiences. David Osman has produced major series and programs for National Public Radio, Pacifica, and American Public Media. He's the author of novels, screenplays, and volumes of poetry. He's credited with organizing the first ever love-in, and he even ran for U.S. Vice President once, in character, as George Tirebiter. Before Firesign, Phil Proctor worked extensively in musical theater on Broadway, the West Coast, and in touring productions. He's also acted for film and television, and has provided voices for several animated films, television series, and video games. Recently, David Osman and Phil Proctor joined me for a conversation in the WFIU studios. David Osman, Phil Proctor, welcome to Profiles. Well, we're glad to be here. <laughs> well, occasionally I, as host of this program, encounter the sort of problem that's great to have, uh, <laughs> namely that you have a guest that is so prolific that you don't really know where to start. Yeah. And so I have that problem on this occasion, and it's mm. multiplied by two because mm. both of you, both you, Phil Proctor, and you, David Osman, are so prolific. You could begin at the beginning, but maybe I should exploit the fact that, Phil, you have an Indiana connection. I was born in Goshen, Indiana. That's right. And if you move the letters of Goshen around, it spells he's gone mm-hmm. because I did, I did leave at a certain point. And uh, I lived in Elkhart. My dad's father was Senator Robert E. Proctor. He was a senator of Indiana. My mom is of Amish and Irish ancestry, as am I. So we're an O'Connor and a Yoder on my mom's side of the family. so We did a sketch at uh, a radio performance in which one of the characters has played the other character, he thinks, yeah. as a character on television. It's identity, you know. And you see, now we are old enough to see television programs in which people we know perfectly well are being performed by people we don't know at all. You know, it's very... Who are more famous than we are. Than we are, yes. But somebody was talking to us about doing a biopic of the Firesign Theater. And this was only, I think, and solely because Brian Cranston looked exactly like a young George Tirebiter in one of his movies. And we said, oh, he looks so much like Tirebiter. Well, we'll cast him as you. And I said, well, yeah, who are you going as Bergman? You know? Let's get our people to talk to his people. I think we should explain that we are half the wits of the Firesign Theater, which uh, was a four-man group until two of the partners left us. Well, they died. Yes. Okay? And so David and I are performing around the country as what's left of the Firesign Theater. And what brought us out here to beautiful Bloomington was a fellow named Richard Fish, who went to this very school, by the way, and he has a show called Firehouse Follies. 
once a month. And he invited us out to be on the show, along with Gary Sandy, who's a dear friend of ours from WKRP in Cincinnati, and Amy Walker, who is a wonderful, beautiful, talented woman who provided some musical entertainment. And we did the show, a two-hour live radio show. And the skit that David's talking about is something that I wrote called The Funny Part. And indeed, it was about I played an actor who thinks that he's played this character on a television documentary about Civil War reenactors. And indeed, David plays a guy who is a Civil War reenactor. But as it turns out, he's the wrong one. one. He's not the the guy that. Right. But that's somebody kept saying Holly Weird, you know. And they've changed it to Hollyweed, yes. you know, the Hollywood sign, yeah, which was Hollywood Land originally, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. It's not so weird as it is filled full of confusing identities, yeah. L.A., because it doesn't ever really settle down to being something. It's not Boston. You know, it's not Bloomington. No. It's 27 small towns in search of... That's both right. downtown and the beach. It's so a, it's always mega, been mega divided homeless. between, you know, where all the money is in downtown and the west side where the movie studios mm-hmm. are and the beach is where you really want to live because it's nice weather out there, no smog. So it's a divided city. And the idea, we played with this really much of yeah, our career, yeah. is the question of identity. When you're playing someone who's real or almost real, you provide backstories for these characters, and we've done it. I've done it on Firesign albums. So that's uh, where George Leroy Tirebiter actually got created. Yeah. The Firesign Theater, four man satirical group, nominated for three Grammys over our 55 year career. Our archives were recently acquired by the Library of Congress, and uh, Dave and I actually got together to perform in Washington, D.C., and we did this piece called The Art of Radio, which is the piece that we're taking around the country now. And it evolves, just like the fire sign did. It it evolves every time we do it. We've added video to it now of the original four members of the fire sign theater, Phil Austin and Peter Bergman, who have left us. And uh, we try to keep their spirit alive when we do these performances. And believe me, the people who come to see the shows are just the sweetest, most wonderful people. And they've been fans for forever. And sometimes they bring their kids who are not new Firesign fans. Because what we did was, that was so unique, and I'm sure you know this, but maybe some of the people listening to us don't, is we created the long-form comedy album, a story album, if you will. Yes, the stories were surrealistic and sometimes confusing, but they were indeed a flow and an arc of a story in which characters emerged that were a mix of music and uh, drama and comedy and crazy sound effects, and we made quite a long career out of it. How many records did we do in all? 20-something? Well, we did uh, nine plus a best of for Columbia Records, and we were on Columbia at the same time as everybody else in the rock world was on Columbia, including, uh, I have been saying this story, because Bob Dylan's birthday was just... uh, About a week ago. Yeah, a week ago from where we are at the moment. And 
we had a Bob's birthday celebration on Whidbey Island, which is where I live. And we give a cabaret, and it's an open mic in the afternoon, and then we do a performance in the evening. Not all of Bob, but various things. We did Allen Ginsberg this time because of his connection with the 60s anyway. The the poetry Bob Dylan, you know. We just did the, you know, because I think he totally deserved the Nobel Prize. I mean, he's the greatest poet of the second half of the century, besides Allen, who raised the Pentagon, you'll remember. Anyway... The 60s is bracketed by Dylan. 61, Bob Dylan, the first album came out. And 68 was John Wesley Harding. It came out in February of 1968, exactly the same time as the Firesign Theater's first album came out. Waiting for the electrician or someone like him. Yeah. And it was Bob's what by then? I call oh, him gosh, Bob. It was, it was maybe probably, a dozen by pro- then. Maybe almost that. Eight, probably, something yeah. like that. And so we were debuting with this incredible album. Which by the way, I think he went electric around the time we released Electrician. <laughs> well, yeah, something like that. I think you're right. It drove everybody crazy. Yeah. You know, people loved it. People didn't love it. We loved it. Just right. like our records. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we came out of a couple of influences. I'm mentioning Bob Dylan because of the poetry, okay? I came to the group as a poet. That's right. As a writer-poet, not as an actor-writer or a radio performer-writer, you know, but as a poet. And everybody said, oh, Dave, he's the poet in the group. That came partly out of the deep, early rock and roll that we had been experiencing. And then when we sat down to write our first album, Waiting for the Electrician, or someone like him, we were listening to the mono release of Sgt. Pepper, which had come on tape to the radio station we were working for. There we were. We were listening to this, and we ran it over and over and over. to a story album. And what they did was revolutionary. They segued from song to song. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy, Mm -hmm. that's what we should do. So the first side of the album had three sketches, you Mm -hmm. know, and they were separate sketches. They were connected But we connected them in a Beatles-like way with sound. We connected them by sound. And we had the same four tracks that they yeah, had to yeah. record on. Sergeant Pepper, we were exactly the same studio conditions. We were in a radio studio, former radio studio. Uh, at, at Columbia Records. At, yes, CBS. CBS. It was the CBS Studio B where yeah. Suspense came out of this very same studio. There was a Hammond B3 organ with yep. a Leslie speaker in there. There was a Moog synthesizer in this room. And Phil Proctor here went around the place and discovered all the old sound effects. They were about to throw them out. Yeah, it was crazy. We found all these Battleship Gray painted little doors and wind machines and marching men all made out of wood <laughs> and canvas and stuff. It was a great... Here we were in our late, the late 20s, between 25 and 30, and we have this playground, which is the same as the rock and rollers of the moment. Yeah. We, as far as Columbia Records was we concerned, were we were a band. We were advertised once as the only rock and roll group that doesn't need music. That's right. Which was funny because our shows were full of music. Yes, yes, yes. Full of music all yes. the time. I mean, you know. And singing and yeah, all kinds yeah. of tough I mean, We, we yeah. aspired to be not a rock band, but to include that along with everything else that was expressive of the late of the 60s. Era. I think and actually that the best description of us was that we were called the jesters of the rock generation. Yeah. And actually it was, ironically, the Library of Congress 
who labeled us as the Beatles of comedy, which is true because we were inspired by the Beatles, as David said, and we kind of like justified that we could do these long-form stories because what David didn't say was that the second side of the album (laughs) in the days when you had two sides to every story, right, uh, was a long-form story, the waiting for the electrician or someone like him adventure. And that was really the first time that we experimented with the long form. Yeah. Uh, we were inspired in, in turn by the Goon Shows. Do you know what, what they are? Oh, yeah, the Goon Show with Spike Milligan uh, and Peter Sellers. And Peter Sellers. Uh, yeah. yeah. What I'm wondering, though, is how much of what you were doing, everything you were both just talking about, yeah. your approach to all of this, how much of this was created because it was what you were hearing in your influences, like the Goon Show, like Bob and Ray, like Nichols and May, mm-hmm. or how much of it was because you weren't hearing it, because it was something that you wanted to be out there in the world? You know, we've we've thought about this and we've yeah, talked about lot, this a lot, actually, haven't yeah, we, over the yeah. years. But uh, my take on it is that we were creating records to be played in the privacy of one's home. And that meant that we could be, well, for the time, we were quite politically incorrect. We were actually politically very correct. But we were, <laughs> by today's standards, we'd be called politically incorrect because people are afraid to see the truth these days and are very confused about what it is. But basically, we never really expected that we would get the kind of airplay that we got. How could we possibly, in an era where radio was restricted to two and a half, three minute, three and a half minute songs, right? We're writing 20 minute, 25 minute comic pieces that are all connected together. Not easy to lift stuff out and play. And it wasn't until the advent, the growth of FM radio, that suddenly we found that we were being played in college stations all over the country and a coterie of people whom I always called a bad head cult started turning on to our records and sharing them because they heard us on the radio and said, what, what's that? Who is that? And some guy would say, that's Fireside Theater, man. Come on, I got one of their records. Let's get stoned and listen to it, you know. He said, I'm already stoned. Okay, well, come over to the dorm and we'll put it on. <laughs> anyway, it created a certain kind of a fame for us. That was a surprise. It was a surprise. I, let me segue from mm-hmm. the fact that it was a surprise. The first time we went to the East Coast, we played all our old colleges, basically. Mm-hmm. Played Columbia and Yale. And, I went to Yale. Yeah. So we arrived at... The first college date, and before we got there, they said, oh, gee, can you guys do a second show? <laughs> and we're in the dressing room, what? and it's like, can you guys do a third show? Oh, my gosh. I forgot and this that. is the first time we're on the we're, – I mean, yeah. we didn't know anybody knew even our names. Yeah. I mean, the name, Fireside Theater. So we've sold out three shows, whatever it was, you know, 150 people per show. Yeah. They're just ecstatic. We go out there, and we're doing not material from our albums – but our, quote, stage act, which is really a cabaret act in which we took our radio plays and rewrote them as half-hour mm-hmm. stage comedies. We were playing them in folk clubs with Taj Mahal and Sun House and Lightning Hopkins and mm-hmm. all of these yeah. folkies, you know. So we open on the East and we're absolutely blown away that we had this incredible following. It was was the local radio stations. And also in New York City, when Electrician came out on a hugely well-listened-to program, whose name has slipped out of my ancient mind at the moment, but he played side one, and then he played side two, and he played side one, and he played it all night on his all-night show. So potentially hundreds of thousands of people 
heard that show that night. We had no idea. No idea. This is 70. We've already done two albums, and the the second one, the politically incorrect one, fortunately has Nick Danger on the other side. Yeah. Well, everybody could understand Nick Danger. And you know everybody could do all the voices. Couldn't they, Rocky? And so immediately everybody did them. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. Our guests today are one half of Firesign Theater, David Osman and Phil Proctor, who didn't really feel like waiting for me to ask about how the group got its name. Why are we called the Firesign Theater? There's this one I know. What? Why? It was because uh, you found out pretty shortly after you met that you were all born under one of the astrological fire signs. Correct. My gosh, I never thought of he that He did before. some research, this right. person. I'm a Leo, Dave's a Sagittarian, Peter was a Sagittarian, and Phil was unfortunately an Aries. And... We started on a radio show that Peter Bergman had created, a guy I went to Yale with who wrote the lyrics for some musicals written by Austin Pendleton that I played lead roles in. And I connected up with him again in Los Angeles during the Sunset Strip riots where I sat on a picture of his face in the L.A. Free Press. And it said, KPFK newsman Peter Bergman interviews returning war veterans. So... I called him up the next day. He says, yeah, I got a show called Radio Free Oz. I'm the Wizard of Oz. I said, of course you are. And he said, come on down and we'll play. I met David and I met Phil because they were working at the station, KPFK, listener-supported radio. And we started improvising together. And then we discovered that we were all fire signs. Let me just break this down. You called him up. You reconnected. Yeah. You say you sat in a picture of his face. It really was in a yeah, paper. Yeah, it was, a, it was in you, a newspaper. The LA Free Press. Part of the, yep. part of the Sunset Strip riots, uh, which, you know, if something's happening here, mm-hmm. well, I was there. And it basically was... For what it's a, worth. The song by the Buffalo Springfield. Right. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. It was basically to try to impose a curfew on the youth in the 60s to stop anti-Vietnam War protests. That's what it was all about. And uh, they had the L.A. police and the sheriffs doing a pincer movement on all these thousands of people who came out to protest the curfew. We had a sit-down in front of one of the clubs, and that's where I sat on Peter's face and... That was really the connection to the Fireside Theater. We were. If he hadn't wanted to keep his pants clean, I mean, we're saying, you know, <laughs> we were, the guy we, wasn't wearing jeans. He came were, from listen, New York. They you were know. revolutionary times, and they were revelationary times. And this show, tell them a little bit about the show, because you were this uh, station manager at KPFK. Well, I had been essentially the program director. The general manager always took that title, but I did all the work for a couple of years. I was at KPFK, started in New York at WBAI, uh, pioneer FM broadcasting in 1959. Still a very revolutionary station. But it reflected New York. It was totally into New York culture. I did a series of interviews with poets called The Sullen Art. and inter- Not just any poets. I mean, people like Allen Ginsberg, some of the most important people well, who were changing f- poetry. first interview, actually. Hmm. And was so, with you. Yeah, it was with me. And it is in a book called The Sullen Art, and it's a remarkable interview. Um, Radio came naturally to Peter, just starting with The Wizard. 
his parents had actually had a morning breakfast with yeah. the Bergman's radio program. Yeah. So it goes way back with Peter. From Cleveland. He, he in Cleveland, Cleveland, yeah. He was really a natural. He arrived in L.A. fresh from Europe, from... Uh, Making a movie just, in He was just really full of Germany. incredible energy, landed at the radio station, and they almost immediately gave him a late-night radio program. Well, that's because they used him in a fundraiser, right? Exactly. Well, and, Phil and Austin just... and I were pitching for money, very first fundraiser. This is 67. Yeah, 1966. End of 66. And uh, Peter comes in. It was just a, it was a hugely successful one. How did he get into that show? What happened? Well, he just showed up. He drove in on a motorcycle from San Francisco. Somehow he knew where to go. And he came in and said, <laughs> what are you guys doing? He talked his way into you know, the Yeah, talked his job. way into it. And he was so effective on the air raising money that they hired him. By that time, I was in this miserable job at ABC Television. We're number three, and we're not going to get any better. <laughs> Uh, that was the year of Batman. That was their their big uh, big year. It was Batman, Ow. and so I was volunteering back at the radio station, and so happy to be there. Mm. And Austin and I had this great relationship on the air. We were just super on the air. He was a young Shakespearean actor, twenty five. Mm -hmm. Bergman comes in, and Bergman is a force of nature, and he has a partner, and his partner just finally leaves. He can't deal with him. It's just you know. And it is what NPR now likes to call driveway radio. Oh, yes, driveway you know, moments, yeah. You've got to stop and keep the radio <laughs> on in your driveway. It was, that was the way it was with Peter. It was late at night. And so Austin, who was producing his program live, would just go in, you know, set Peter's the mic. Program. Yeah, Peter's. And he would go in and sit down on the other mic, and they would do what we're doing now, chat yeah. on two mics. Yeah. And, uh, it was well, from 10 to 2 I, in the I think it was the first on 11 yeah, I think it was really late. It was the first call-in counterculture yep. talk show. Yep, yep. He People invented would, it. Would, he'd do an, an opening rap, which he called he called it a rap. It wasn't like a rap song. It was like, I'm going to rap with you, man. And then he'd have an interview, interviewed you know major rock stars of the period. There's a yeah. huge and unexplored gurus. archive and, of this. And Indian medicine oh, yeah. men. We were, we, we were, the Hopi were there, the Hare Krishnas were there. It was amazing. We were right on it. Yeah. We were on the we moment of it. time we were and in it. it. And, uh, you know, when Phil, when Proctor showed up, out of Yale and, fre you know, fresh from all of the stuff he'd been doing. Yeah, I was an actor. Actor full of... Soap operas. Yeah, and really experienced, Broadway, okay? Yeah. I'm a really experienced radio producer. Peter Bergman is a force of nature. And Phil Austin is looking for where he's going to rest this immense talent that yeah. he has. Because he can play he's music, he can write. He has a real surreal turn of yeah, mind. Great surreal writer. And he's done a lot of Shakespeare. So, and, he, you know, and he was a chameleon. He could do all kinds of different voices and yep, characters. Yeah. So we realized on this radio program that our voices and the characters we could play on the radio were really powerful. Yeah, well, they were believed. We were believed. Yeah. I think like almost the first night we were together, Peter threw us into an improvisation called the Oz Film Festival. And the conceit was that there was going to be a Radio Free Oz Film Festival in Los Angeles. And so we all pretended to be various filmmakers. Uh, I was a guy named Jean-Claude Jean-Claude, who had done a film called Two Weeks with Fred, 
which was, you know, a film that you spend two weeks with my friend Fred. Uh, when he goes to sleep, uh, you take a nap, you know, in the theater. And when he go to the bathroom, you can go to the bathroom, you know. So anyway, that was one of my conceits. And then David did a Spanish character. That was a character from uh, Latin America who is, uh, what he liked was the moving camera. Since everything is so beautiful now and so big, you got Panavision. So my last film, I take Panavision camera up to the uh, top of the Andes Mountain, and we just pitch it over, and it rolls. It's it so really beautiful. Moving. It was a moving experience. Yeah. And, but Phil Austin, <laughs> among his characters, he chose to be an adult filmmaker. And his film, one of his films, was called uh, Blondie Pays the Rent. And we were going to show it on the radio. Well, we started you know, to show it. We're, we're looking at this. Bergman says, no, you can't yeah, do yeah, that. He stops I'm us. sorry. Stop it. You can't show that dirty movie on the radio. So we'll they, lose, they, the F-CC will yeah. take my license yeah. away. All right. And the phones lit up. We took it off. And the phones lit up. The phones lit up. How can you censor this? Yeah. How dare how you? dare you take this off here? <laughs> the man's an artist. Let him show his movie. And that's when we realized we were on to something. It was our Orson Welles moment. <laughs> You're listening to Profiles. From WFIU, I'm Aaron Kane. I'm speaking with David Osman and Phil Proctor of the Firesign Theater. There's something else about that first show that I want to talk about, yeah. because not only was it the lightning in the bottle moment for mm-hmm. the Firesign yeah. Theater, it was the first instance I can think of of something that's another hallmark of your work with the Firesign Theater and also your work independently and in different combinations of the four of you over the yeah. years, which is the almost disturbing level of prescience in it. That that <laughs> character that you mentioned, Phil, of uh, Jean-Claude, Jean-Claude, Jean-Claude. Uh, who had the big, long documentary, the... Uh, uh, two-week two documentary. Yeah. The longest film that I know of that was made by the time you made that joke yes. was five and a half hours. <laughs> now, the longest film of which I'm aware is called Logistics. It was made in 2012, and it takes 35 days and 17 hours to watch. 35 days, 17 hours. And so this thing that you were kind of coming up with off the cuff as a piece of, of Surreal. absurd Concerts. surrealism, yeah. yeah, they're doing that now. They're doing it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. We are futurists. The Firesign Theater's mind together, that insect mind that we discovered, was able to predict a lot of things in society that continued to happen well, and are continuing to happen yeah, now. Think, think of that camera. Now you got a $50 camera that's going to give you first-class movie theater quality video, yeah, and right. you can throw it down the mountain all you want. Sure, that's right. And you can jump off a motorcycle and you can, you know, I mean, they Film use them constantly. Theater. They're filled with those little, what do they call those little cameras? The GoPro cameras. cameras. GoPro. Yeah. Oh, They're filled I with them. They were just so, well, so, you know, here's, know? here's my guy, you know, throwing his Panavision down, which is thousands and thousands of dollars and weighs hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Now you can take this little guy and just hurl it off the top. Whoa, there it goes. Pick it up at the bottom. But being a futurist was very liberating for us because we could project things. I think the most telling aspect of that in our work, telling example of it, is I think we're all bozos on this bus. Now, I think we're all bozos on this bus was an album that predicted the future of computers and the importance of computers. And I'm going to ask Siri something. Okay, here we go. This is Worker speaking. Hello. 
Hello, Aklem. What function can I perform for you? LOL. Now, you may wonder why she is speaking in a robot voice and then her normal voice. I'm Aklem. It was a character we created who was a dis... Well, I hate to say this. He was a disgruntled worker. Oh, see that? It was funny then. It's not funny now. Yeah. But he, he was gruntled. And he came back to this place called the Future Fair, which was a government-operated fair. It's supposed to make everybody feel good about living in their world today. His intent was to hack into the mainframe computer and plant a virus. Now, we didn't use those words, but that's what we were doing. And if you listen to the album, he screwed around with the binary aspect of what a computer is. Yes, no, yes, no, positive, negative, and brings down the entire future fair. The whole illusion disappears. And in that album, we also broke the president. There's an animatronic president who's telling lots of nonsense about the world, and we destroyed him. It was right before Nixon's fall. Yeah. So that was pretty. But why does Siri say this? She says it because we learned that Steve Jobs was a big fan of the Fireside Theater. And this is no homage to us. Well, I did a lot of voices for Pixar movies. I have a whole career in voiceovers, so does David. And we did A Bug's Life together, separately, but together. I played various, you know, grasshoppers. I think you played uh, flies, I think you played. And flies and grasshoppers. It was really disgusting. But David had a a real role in A Bug's Life. Tell me about that. Cornelius. It was a great experience, and actually I got it through Phil, because Phil had been doing all these Disney movies. Yeah, Pixar and Disney. And the the director, or not the director, but this was the guy who was quite lovely, and he said, would you come and do an audition? And it flew me down to San Francisco, and I did this audition, and all I had was just a drawing, a conception drawing of what the character looked like. I'd done lots of voiceovers of other kinds of things, scientific movies, and Nova, and that kind of thing. And you're just reading a script. Well, here you're reading a script, but you're trying to <clears throat> um, ask, can I, oh, would he sound like this, you know? At the end of this whole process, because it was about two years, it takes a long time to make one of those movies, well, called, they cast you. They, oh, yes, that, I was right. cast. I mean, okay. I had been cast. They didn't. They and you were working opposite Phyllis Diller. Well, never in the same room right. with Phyllis Diller. Well, you but, don't want to yeah. be in the same room with Phyllis yeah, Diller. Yeah, she was wonderful. We went to Reno with Phyllis doll. Diller and recorded her whole show there, and she told us all about how she started in clubs and how they were all run by gangsters, and it was the yeah. only safe play for gays, and that was where the whole culture of comedy clubs started. Really, that's a great interview. Never aired in the great archive, you know, of my lifetime. Did, right? When, that was yeah, I did that when my wife, Judith Walcott, and I did a pilot, which was called American Comedy from a Cylinder to CD, mm. which essentially was taking in the LP period. And the pilot was the rise of the stand-up. But let me... The Wrap reason we mentioned that... Yes. Go back you, to you the beginning. Back. Or as the CDs now go... But when I went to the cast screening party up in Emeryville, actually it was in the City Hall of San Francisco or some big City Hall thing or municipal building. Anyway, yeah, I meet Steve Jobs because he had bought into... Pixar to help them develop their CGI, okay, animation. And he said, I'm a big fan of yours. I was very flattered. And when we were gathering together our archival material for the Library of Congress over the last few years, our archivist, Taylor Jessen, found a contact sheet 
of pictures that were taken at a record signing up in Berkeley. Hmm. And there is this young man standing with us, posing with us, with a little goatee and a mustache and long hair. It was Steve Jobs. <laughs> he was a fan of ours, literally, from the beginning. And then when he heard this album, I think it kind of validated for him the fact that he was putting himself on the line with this whole computer thing and he was going to do it. And we, as futurists, said, yeah, this is it. Let's go. You know, This is the future part but of the future. But be careful. But be careful. But be, be careful. careful, Steve. Be <laughs> careful. I think I can go back almost to your first almost question, which was about the audience. And there was a point after the second album we're, then we were going to have a third. We so haven't we, mentioned the second album. How can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all? And on the flip side, Nick Danger, Third Eye, America's Only Detective. So that album sold, partly because it was arable. Yeah. You know, it could get on the radio. FM was still would play a half, 28 minutes. Both sides are 28 minutes. Longest album Columbia ever released. It, grooves are very small together. <laughs> and, so, and so we went on tour, that 1970 tour, where we found that we were loved and yeah. people wanted to, so you know. Exciting. So we came back from New York and uh, was sitting with Phil Austin. I was on a swing, actually. Oh, yeah? And we were at our artist friend's apartment in the village on Canal Street okay. who did the cover for Don't Crush Bob That Grossman. Dwarf. Bob Grossman. We're having this nice party. He was roommate at Yale, by yeah. the way, Bob Grossman. And, the late uh, Bob Grossman, the great Bob Yeah, Grossman. just, yeah, he's a fabulous artist. And that's the cover, the orange cover of Don't Crush That He invented that airbrush art commercially. Yeah. He, you know, he did a cover yeah. for and, Time magazine, yeah, airbrush yeah, Airbrush, not cartooning, but caricaturing. Caricatures. Yeah, airbrush he did. He did the poster for Airplane, you know, the twisted oh, airplane yeah. all tied yeah, together. That, that That's was, Bob Grossman's work. Yeah, when he died, that was the one that they most often showed as an yeah, example of his right. work. Anyway, I'm swinging back and no, forth, and we're talking about the next album, Because We Can, you know? Yep. And our attitude was, at that moment, wait till they hear what we have to tell yeah, them yeah. because we've been accumulating all this material, writing all this stuff. We were ready to go in and write the album, which mm -hmm. was going to be something else. But the attitude was, we have this for them. And then by the time that Bozo's, the fourth album came out, we really did have information that they needed to know. Yeah. And by the time the <laughs> fifth album came out, Everything you know is wrong. That's right. And by that time, we knew who we were talking to. Well, I want to talk about everything you know is wrong. It's okay. another example of this almost eerie prescience that I mentioned because it satirized the developing of this new age movement <laughs> uh, rather aggressively. <laughs> uh, and everything you know is wrong, by the way, has become something of an invocation, yeah. I think, oh, for yeah. fire There are at least itself. four people, books that have stolen and, that. And Weird Al. People to, kind of, yeah, Weird Al used it. it. People it kind of shout of it in celebration of the group, really. Yeah. So... What I want to know about is what the one half of the Fireside Theater thinks about the satire of everything you know is wrong at a time when conspiracy theories are again ascendant and, and everything you know is fake news. Well, there's a couple of things mm -hmm. about it. First yeah. of all, we made a movie of it. I don't know if it's available, but... Yeah, it's on a compilation called Everything You Know Is Wrong, which is a compilation of oh, our, yeah, all our... Right. A DVD. We have yeah, a DVD. Yeah, it's a DVD. Out. It's a double DVD set. The other half is uh, home movies, 
which have really been well restored. And yeah. It will bring back memories of the 60s. Or yeah, if you weren't will. there, you'll look and say, is that the way L.A. looked yeah. back in 1967? Where are the houses? Yeah, But, yeah. but the movie that we did, yeah. we lip-synced to the soundtrack of the record. And Alan Davio, who is a friend of Phil's, I guess, yep. uh, he filmed it for us. He went on to do, let's see, his next movie was uh, a little thing called uh, E.T. <laughs> I think I heard of that. <laughs> right, right. So it was perfect that he was doing this really parody of science fiction in a way and conspiracy theories and all that stuff. And, of course, as of right now, they've been revealing pictures of UFOs that pilots have taken, you know. Yeah. I mean, the mystery continues. But basically, we wanted to investigate that from a kind of a tongue-in-cheek perspective because, in general, the Firesign Theater did not take our work too seriously. Our fans often would, but we didn't. The message, as far as I'm concerned, that we were united behind was you are responsible for your perceptions of life. You are responsible for yourself. You're responsible for your choices. And you must break the thrall of propaganda and of brainwashing and of the illusion that we all live in, which is augmented by television and advertising and politics and all the rest of it. Yeah, stand and, back from it. As I said at one point, turn off the news. When I'm yeah. working on the air with Peter. We said, turn off the news. Don't watch the news because it will just aggravate the situation that you're in. Also, I think in terms of audience at that point, we, we had... Uh, I used to ask, what's your favorite album? And it would be either Dwarf or Bozos. Yeah. Sometimes Nick Danger, but usually if they were really hip, it was either Dwarf or Bozos. If it was Dwarf, we knew one thing about them. If it was Bozos, we knew another. Oh, yeah, Bozo, Bozos. Uh, Dwarf was about people. television. Yeah. It was about the influence of television. Yeah. And, and also, we would do parodies of radio shows and parodies of commercials and parodies of news broadcasts and things integrated into our stories that sounded legitimate. They mirrored the way things really sounded, but were subversive. Yeah, they were never what Saturday Night Live does as an advertising parody. Yeah, so it was like deprogramming yeah. people. Here's the other thing is we were there before anybody Except The Goon Show. There was not anybody doing satire before the Smothers Brothers yeah. show, way before Saturday Night Live. Really, there was nobody out there. So, in terms of our audience, what they were hearing, some people wanted to do that comedy. Some people mm -hmm. wanted to do those voices. Some people wanted to say, oh, how did they get that sound? It sounds like, whoa, 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 whatever, it, you know. And some people said, oh, yeah, I'm working in the studio now, radio. I love radio. And this is real radio for me. I'm listening, you know. And so then when these boomers were growing up and came to us in their first wave as fans, there were the people who were, I'm on radio because of you guys. Oh, I'm a studio engineer because I wanted to make the kind of sound you guys make. Yeah. You know, and there were hundreds of people who tried to start their own comedy groups, but yeah. there was no, they couldn't get on a record. How could they? We actually had sucked up all the air in the room. There's no more room for anybody else. I think you know, one, doing of, the, that. one of the examples of that is that when we first appeared at a place called the Ice House in Pasadena, it was one of our earliest performances, I think, mm -hmm. Dave. Steve Martin opened for us, and it was his <laughs> first performance as well. Yeah. 
He was doing his crazy balloon animal stuff. He was so surreal and so funny. And the critic, at least the one I read, didn't get him. He got us. Right, yeah. But they didn't get him. And also we were all appearing. going like, oh, man, he's a genius. <laughs> he's going to be wonderful. Okay, I want to mention two things about why we could do what we did. And that is because after our first album, Columbia didn't know what to do with us. And there was one guy named John something or another. I wish I could remember his name because he's a wonderful man and he's gone on to do great records. He was a producer. And he said, these guys are geniuses. They're revolutionizing comedy on records. We have to keep them signed. And he said, I'm going to sign them to a spoken arts contract, which meant that we had unlimited free studio time for a reduced royalty. That's why none of us became millionaires or anything. We just became, you know, thousandaires. But the fact was we could write a record. We could go on stage, which we did, and work out material for a new record and then go into the studio and lay down five minutes of it, go back once we were informed by what we did in standing it up and improvising on it and all that and could listen to it. We could go back and then refine it, go back into the studio it allowed us an incredible freedom to play in the sandbox. No mommy calling, come on for dinner. You know, no. It's not we only those stay. nine albums that we did as a group, but also the three albums we did separately, the Proctor and Bergman album, TV or Not TV, How Time Flies, in which I attempted then to use the long-form LP record in the same way as the radio show like Dimension X to tell a long-form science fiction story. The fire sign is in there, but it was the first place in my career I started working with stars, with other actors, with, you know, and at that point it was uh, uh, Wolfman Jack showed up. You know, Wolfman that, Jack! Uh, Wolfman. Too much! Too soon! They said, uh, Wolfman Jack is making an album. Would you like to use him on your... They didn't get to album. I said, where is he? Yeah. You know, <laughs> Wolfman. Let him out of his cage. And we had a great time. He said, get him the script. And I Who said, else Just is on it? Was Harry Shearer on Harry Shearer is on that album as well. We uh, were on the album. Everybody yeah, and of course, Fireside was on the album. Proctor plays this memorable character. Austin has Which a brief scene. It's Tweeny. It's is a it little tweeny? robot yeah, who moves robot. around. And well, Anyway, we were trying to use that as a long form. And then Austin took two years to do his Roller Maidens Roller from Maidens Outer Space, Space, which actually musical. came out on oh. Epic, but Epic is Columbia anyway. And that has four terrific songs in it, beautifully produced. Yep. And this very complicated story in which the main characters move between channels on television. <laughs> okay, what we had done was click between yeah. shows. We invented the remote control. Yeah, right. Don't crush yeah, that yeah, dwarf, yeah. hand me the pliers. <laughs> yeah. One of the explanations of don't crush that dwarf, hand me the pliers is that one of my housemates lost the knob, the channel-changing knob, on his television. And so he had a pair of pliers that you would put down and change the channels by using But the also, in the old televisions, <laughs> sometimes the horizontal and vertical would go out, and the picture would be squeezed yeah. down so that everybody was a little, tiny little person. And you had to go in the back of the television with pliers <laughs> and, and put them into this one little knob thing and turn it until it, whoop, it opened up again. To the whole picture. So we're making these records, but what we really wanted, we really want to be rich and famous. I mean, you know, rock stars here, you know, modest rock stars. We want to make movies. 
Yeah. And so at this same time, 70, 71, 1971, we're just barely there, you know. We're hired to write the script for a film version, a psychedelic version of Siddhartha. The Siddhartha story. Yeah, called Zachariah. A fellow named Joe Masso. Joe Masso. Cockney from England, who had done a documentary about... Uh, George Harrison or something like that, Wonderwall. He just worked with uh, Harrison on Wonderwall. Yeah, yeah. Wonder so we had Beatles creds, you know. Yeah, so he big. came in. It was going to be his movie. He was going to direct it, and we were going to write it with him. And he got all bent out of shape by Hollywood, and, and he abandoned the project. George England, the producer, then took over the reins as a director, which was a mixed blessing. It meant the movie would be made, but he, 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 George was not hip. You know, he was married to Cloris Leachman. It didn't make him hip. No, but we made her hip because <laughs> when we went down to the location in Laguna Ensalada in <laughs> Mexico to shoot the film, we were driving with Cloris. We turned her on for the first time. And right after that, she won an Academy Award. Yeah, was, yeah, did really, uh, <laughs> really well. Actually, we had yeah, uh, And left George. Laguna <laughs> Ensalada, San Clamarone. We called this location. We had great fun. Austin didn't come, but the three of us were down there. And it was before Country Joe and the Fish were coming. The first thing Peter had to do was locate some pot for Country George and the Fish. And us, of course. So he's, hey, uh, excuse me, pardoname, uh, can you tell me where I can get some pot? Oh, yeah, the you first know, day in the so hotel funny. down there. First day in the hotel. Oh, That's funny. And this guy came up with a thing called alfombro, the carpet, uh, yeah. which is what they call it. Oh, those experiences down it there. It was a great oh, week in Mexico and, and, with that. Don Johnson and John Rubenstein yeah. were the stars of that movie. And what I started to say about George was that George was um, uh, square. And so instead of it being a psychedelic experience, it was more of a fantasy yeah. the way he conceived yeah. it. What we wanted to do is what Firesign was doing was to make a movie where it looks like a Western, but there are contemporary references. Blazing Saddles. That's yeah, what we there, basically yeah. wanted to yeah. do before Blazing Saddles. But we were unable to do it because there wasn't the comprehension of what we wanted to do. And also, there wasn't CGI back then. No. And some mm-hmm. of the things you want to do, like the bullet travels slowly. And well, that was, and that was in <laughs> Joe Masso's original script, had no dialogue. Actually, he walked out saying, words, words, words. Yeah, I forgot and, that. And right. walked out of the writing session. That's the last we ever saw. Him. Because he didn't run into words. He was into all the psychedelic imagery that he's just done with Wonderwall. Yeah. And that's what he wanted to do. And yeah. And they didn't want him to do that. ABC no. Pictures didn't want him to do that. A footnote about Zachariah is it's just been reissued mm-hmm. with a new, you know, whatever it is, 5.1 or whatever it is. It's on 5.6, 8.7, what, Yeah, well, whatever the latest point is. And it has become something of a cult classic now. But because of the approach that George imposed upon us. Yeah. It's also kind of a gay cult classic because we had written these scenes like, you know, I love you, man. I love you, man. And instead of that, it came out kind of like, I love you, man. And it was misinterpreted. 
because of the way the film was made. Yeah, here's what we didn't want to do. We didn't want to have one boy kill the other boy because we're in the middle of the Vietnam War. And boys were dying at our virtual feet by the hundreds. And we said, we'll do this movie, but Matthew and Zachariah can have a confrontation. Yeah, one became like, you know, a a, a, a shooter. Yeah, one was a gunfighter and the other guy... Don Johnson was a gunfighter and Zachariah was the pacifist. Yes, and he has a farm and he's, you know... Matthew comes in and challenges him, and all that happens. Because they're friends, and then they have to But they literally ride off into the sunset together. And so the advocate immediately hit it as being a gay romance. Because it was at a time before, you know, everything you know is wrong. It was a time before there was such a thing as gay romance in the movies. The love which cannot speak its name. You know, nobody could speak its name. So, again, it was avant-garde. You know, everything that we did was avant-garde in that regard. We created a newscast character, Hal and Ray. Hal and Ray. Ray Amberger. And and Harold Hipponger. Harold Hipponger. And they started out in a record called uh, Everything You Know Is Wrong. Everything You Know Is Wrong. As newscasters, and they're Channel 6 in Heater, California. Heater is hotter than Hellmouth. They're the two newscasters back and forth. Well, over the years, these characters evolved into lovers. Yeah, and so by the husband time we've moved up to 1999 and we're doing our live stage show, they're a couple. We were They're the kissing. first. And we played it. For, yeah. Why wouldn't I kiss him? He's been my friend for 52 years. That's right. So we brought this relationship specifically into that album and then brought it specifically into the into show. Society. And when we kissed, man, you could hear the audience just go, <laughs> Whoa. Because they never expected never it expected from it. us, you know. And, you know, Saturday Night Live, they use that approach of two men kissing over and over and over again. Yeah. But many, many, many years later. That trying to bring the cultural changes into our show yeah. and realizing, why wouldn't we have become lovers? Perfectly logical. They're on the air every day. They see each other. It's a business romance, and then it moves on. So as we were able to come back to making record albums. Rhino Records. And these characters reemerged. And which one was That was Give Me Immortality. Give Me Immortality or or Give Me Death. Give Me Death. They also show up in Bride of Fire Sign, almost every one of our favorite characters. We did. Boom Dot Bust. Give me immortality, give me death. Bride of Fire 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 What else? Well, that was the three for Rhino around the turn of the century, as I like to say. There are millennial albums. And really wrapping up the last studio albums. The gasp of the 20th century. Let's remember, here's for Rhino. They gave us a studio, and they gave us machines and tracks to record on, whereas that was taken away from us, just as if the paintbrush and the canvas Mm. and everything else had been taken away from a painter. Yeah. When we couldn't make records anymore, what were we now going to do? Well, we were going to try to get on television, just like everybody else in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And we wrote better than anybody else. And we wrote the same way, you know, group writing, just like television writing works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All the comics in, Phil would come in and he'd punch up the script and I'd take it home and type and we'd come back and everybody rewrite it. Funnier ideas than anything that was on the air in the this is the 80s and they never picked us up and they never picked us up and finally we did one of everything well we did have though david we had some interest from early cable and we did a couple of things on early cable we did the madhouse of dr fear peter bergman and i when we 
kind of broke away from the group because Dave and Phil wanted to stay in the studio and make records, which we wanted to do too. But we wanted to go out and meet our audiences. And we wanted to propagate the Firesign Theater in short form cuts that would be played on the radio and just kind of keep the spirit of the thing alive while we were working on more complicated material which we did. And one of the things that Peter and I did was a cut-up film called J-Men Forever because we were invited to come in and write this movie that was based on the Republic Cliffhanger serials, the uh, catalog of which a guy named Dave Gruskoff made available to a producer named Patrick Curtis, who created Raquel Welch's career, by the way, and was married to her for a while. And so we had all these cliffhanger serials, Captain Marvel and, uh, uh, oh, gosh, I can't even, you have to see the movie, uh, J-Men Forever. It's become a cult favorite, and it's available somewhere. But in any event, this next film involved all the members of Firesign Theater, and it was for cable television, and it was a cut-up of horror movies, publicly available horror movies, and we hired Don Adams to play the lead in it. It was very early on. Uh, I, I know. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, the HBO. The it was early. I HBO. think HBO was uh, on like four hours a day. It was just called BO like then. <laughs> Most of it just stank, but we stood out anyway. Yeah, yeah. That was. It was hard for us to do television because the four of us work together as a group, yeah. and four people on television are about four inches high. Oh, yeah. you know? well, he, he, he's we, he's saying days, a very we true thing. Really we couldn't get on The Tonight Show or anything. Yeah. They were even loathe to use duos. Yeah. Okay, Television so, of that kind is a close-up yeah. medium. Yeah. And we said this, give us your news studio. That's all we need. We don't even need a script. Give us your news studio and it'll be laughs forever. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guests today are David Osman and Phil Proctor, both writers, actors, and humorists who are also half of the four-man team that made up the Firesign Theater. Yeah, I had a boss once who told me that radio is the most visual medium. Yeah. And you've both created works that were meant to be read. You've created works that were meant to be seen and heard. You've performed things that were only meant to be heard. And these three things, the written word, the movement, the voice, is there something that for you came first? Our late friend Harry Anderson said about radio, he said, radio is like magic. It has to be believed to be seen. And we approached everything that we did from the perspective of making people believe that they were somewhere and then taking them somewhere else. Movies for the mind is the way we always thought yeah. of it. If that's what you're But that was asking. one of the particulars. You're right. We all did all of those things. The first thing that came for me was radio because that was my first job, really. I mean, I worked at Newsweek for a while, but that was an editorial. Well, you're being a little modest, though. You're also a poet. So Well, you know, there are very few poets who are just poets. They're usually professors, which is mm -hmm. not a job I particularly wanted to go on. So your work, both with Fireside Theater and individually in multiple permutations, it's always been a dizzying contradiction of stuff that's in the moment and ahead of its time and connected to numerous past influences. So given all of that, is it appropriate to ask you about your hopes in terms of legacy? Let me say what Peter said to me when he was living on Whidbey Island for a year and a half 
He said, oh, yeah, I, I've been here for two winters, so I'm a native. And Peter and I did the last Radio Free Oz's together, and we did them almost every day of the week for about a year. It was a real intense thing. And he would sit across the table, and he said to me, the long tail, Dave, the long tail. I said, what do you mean? He said, we have to keep producing product, continue it, so we have a long tail of sales. <laughs> and I said, yes, I get it. Because at that time, all we had was records we didn't own and right. other records we couldn't release and a ton of tape which we couldn't get transferred. You know, so at that point, we, I, I, particularly me, because I've edited all the books with Phil, you know, it was like, let's start releasing. We had the two Rolling Stone books in the 70s, but let's get them out again. Let's look at those early radio programs. Let's look at the stuff we were doing on stage because it was right. really radical Any politics. Man. You know, we passed by Kurt Vonnegut's booth in the Nick's place yesterday. And people have called us Vonnegut-like in that we could be mm. there in the past, way in the future, very predictive. Two places at once when they weren't yeah. anywhere at all. And so the idea that this writer had was that the writing should be preserved. Because this writer God being knows, David. <laughs> yeah. That it, it, we spent so much time on it. Yeah. So you we've know. been putting out books again. If you go to firesigntheater.com, yep. You'll see. Or Amazon. We have a whole page on Amazon. On Amazon. We're constantly there's, creating there's material. There's product that you can watch on YouTube that you don't have to pay for, you know, and yep. nobody pays very much for anything anymore. The idea is to get a billion people giving you a penny. But that long tail, I want to finish that out so our career as writers is there, and then our career as actors is there, and our career as broadcasters. We had those three, and they're all very intimately connected, but they're really different. People didn't ever realize that we did more on stage, spent more hours yeah. and wrote more time of writing yeah. for our stage shows than we ever did for an Tons album. Album was 40 minutes. You know, we'd have to do 90-minute, two-hour stage shows. Yeah. And so, all the radio stuff that we did. The parallel in my life is diversity. Diversity. The Fireside Theater represented an amazing amalgamation of diverse knowledge and skills and talents that we somehow managed to put together for fiery individuals with unique personalities and unique approaches to writing and performing were able to agree as equals that we could create something greater than the sum of its parts. And truly, it was for hippies. And we have always divided whatever Everything money we've equally. made. We didn't have any ways. of those Beatles problems. No. You know, I wrote that song, you know. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. yeah let's, you know, let's, give me more let, money. Let's write Phil a song so he can make some money on the next <laughs> album. You know, no, it was it's never always, like that. It was truly a hippie four-way split. And that's the way we thought of ourselves at the very beginning, 52 years ago. Wow. Well, David Osman, Phil Proctor, thank you so much for speaking with me today. This yeah, has been a blast. Great pleasure. Great pleasure. David Ostman and Phil Proctor, authors, actors, humorists, and half of the wits that made up the Firesign Theater. You can find more information about David Ostman and Phil Proctor, including their many projects, publications, and all things Firesign, 
at firesigntheater.com. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.